You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 15. You'll find this on page 924 of the Pew Bible. And we're looking together at verses 36 through 41. That's page 924 of the Pew Bible. It's Acts chapter 15, verses 36 through 41. Hear the word of God. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement, so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. You know, one of the aspects of Scripture that I greatly admire is its absolute integrity. It tells us things as they are. It doesn't pull its punches. If you've never heard that phrase, pulling a punch means to be less forceful or less severe. There's no attempt in Scripture, in other words, to gloss over the flaws and the failures of God's people. It describes the saints with unparalleled frankness and transparency. And it acknowledges their strengths and at the same time gives equal time to their weaknesses. So the episode before us is a perfect example. It must have been quite embarrassing to the church, to be honest with you. Two great leaders in conflict with one another leading to a separation or a division. And these men, as you know, were giants in the faith, known among all the churches. And on the heels of the council's decision to promote unity, (laughs) there is disagreement. Paul and Barnabas are at odds with one another, and the contrast couldn't be more striking. It reminds me of that remarkable disparity in the experience of Peter. You remember, one moment he confesses Christ, and the next moment Jesus rebukes his satanic resistance? He turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, you're a hindrance to me, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Even the best of saints have flaws. So here, Paul and Barnabas, ambassadors of peace, are at odds with one another. And while on the surface it's discouraging, I think at a deeper level it's encouraging, as we'll find. 
In a strange sort of way, to know that they too were sinners encourages me. They struggled with sin, just like you and me. It was a sharp disagreement. And yes, their teaching and their preaching and their writing may have been inspired, but they had not yet been fully delivered from the remnants of sin, and they struggled. Paul would say near the end of his life, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. (laughs) That's inspired writing. How refreshing is this text in a strange sort of way. The realism, I think, in these verses is reassuring because while the human condition is bleak, God's grace is absolutely amazing. And as we'll see, the Lord is able to work all things together for good. So the text begins with Paul suggesting that they revisit the church plants. He wanted to see what kind of progress they had been making. Was the gospel spreading? Was, were the churches growing? Were they bearing fruit? And it was important to know if they were pressing on in the faith and holding fast to the hope set before them. His aim was to strengthen the fledgling churches as they made their rounds. Barnabas was agreeable. He advocated bringing along John Mark. You may remember that this was Barnabas's cousin. He was blood, blood related. He had accompanied Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. But at Pamphylia, he left them before they set sail for Perga. And we're not sure why he abandoned the mission, and the Bible doesn't tell us why. Perhaps he was homesick. Maybe he was anxious about his mother's safety. Maybe he was weary of the hardships. We don't know. Some even think that his Jewish prejudice flared up when so many Gentiles believed. Whatever the reason, he quit the mission and he went back home. And it was for this reason that the Apostle Paul became deeply suspicious of this young man. In his eyes, John Mark had failed in his duty and betrayed their trust. He quit. And Paul was unwilling at this juncture to risk depending on him again. Because as the Proverbs tell us, trusting in a treacherous man in a time of trouble is like a bad tooth or a foot that slips. Paul was not about to jeopardize the mission by trusting again in John Mark. And yet Barnabas, the son of encouragement, saw promising qualities and potential in this young man. Besides, he was his cousin. What's he going to do, right? He couldn't write him off. He believed Mark was an asset to the team. And this was vintage Barnabas, always eager to see the best in other people. He had expressed confidence in Paul, you remember, when the Jerusalem leaders were suspicious of him. So true to his character, Barnabas wanted to give young Mark another chance. He believed that if given the opportunity, Mark could certainly prove himself. Barnabas was loyal, sympathetic, supportive, a spirit-filled believer, and he often saw promise and potential where other people only saw failure. Was he not a reflection of the Lord himself? Didn't Jesus do the same? 
Christ is able to bring good out of evil and transform defeat into victory and love sinful wretches such as us, even though we're totally depraved. I don't understand that. That love is too deep and too wide for me to comprehend, but he does. And so Luke says there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated. And this was no minor quarrel. It was a major clash. There was tremendous conflict. That word, sharp disagreement, has this jaggedness to it that connotes bitter and painful disagreement. Moses uses a cognate word to describe how the Israelites despised Yahweh. And so Luke uses this word to underscore the biting acrimony of the dispute. This was hard on the church. So sharp was the disagreement that the two men split up and went their separate ways. Barnabas would not go with Paul unless they took John Mark. Paul was adamant in his refusal to allow John Mark to accompany them. Both men were stubborn and neither man would yield. It was a stalemate. And here we see that even the best of men are simply that. They're just men. They were subject to the same sinful passions to which you and I are subject, and they both needed to repent, and they depended upon God's grace. Yes, the Apostle Paul. I think as with almost all disagreements, there was blame to be laid upon both sides. Barnabas was concerned about the individual believer. It was a pastoral concern. Paul was concerned about the cause of the gospel. It was a ministerial concern. Both concerns were good. They should, have, should not have been pitted against one another, the pastoral, the ministerial. Both had good intentions, but the manner in achieving them may have been tainted. And I think the Lord Jesus is keenly interested in both of these legitimate concerns. He concerns himself with each individual. He's numbered the hairs on your head. He concerns himself with the cause of the gospel. He was standing amid the lampstands in Revelation 1. And yet here, the individual interest in Mark was put against the corporate concern of the gospel. It never should have been done. And I think Barnabas was probably too eager to risk the mission for his cousin. And I think Paul was probably too severe in his estimate of Mark's character. Both men erred. And it became a distraction for the church and a potential unsettling of weak believers. So the two men go their separate ways, each taking another man with him. Barnabas sails west with Mark and Paul took Silas and headed north. And the separation is a sad but true illustration of the depravity of human nature. Do we not see the need for vigilance and striving to maintain peace? If they could separate, we have to be careful. Such painful divisions cannot be explained easily or accepted readily. This is hard. But as we shall see, even this God can overrule for good. He did so in the case of Abraham and Lot, Joseph and his brothers, Saul and David, Jesus and Judas. God is faithful, says Paul, and I'd like to apply this text by looking at each of these primary characters in order. 
first. John Mark. Let's look at him. Three things. I think, first of all, this young man illustrates the principle Paul affirmed in Galatians. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Now, why would I say that? Well, because nobody else was responsible for Mark's reputation but himself. For whatever reason, and again, we're not told, he deserted them at Pamphylia. What he did, for better or for worse, planted seeds that later sprouted. It would take him time and consistency to overcome the ill repute of being a quitter. And for the time being, he had to live with the consequences of his actions. And I think it's a lesson for everybody, because each and every day, you and I are sowing seeds. Our words and actions are planted in the gardens of our lives. And as Paul goes on to say, the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Everything we do and everything we say has consequences. Every idle word will be judged. All the things we do and say today will reap a harvest tomorrow. The nature of tomorrow's harvest will depend upon the type of seeds we sow today. And of course, sincere believers can't lose their salvation. God has made a promise. But even true Christians can endure the temporal consequences of sin. We can be sure that John Mark had learned a valuable lesson from all of this because it's not easy being a Christian. You know that. So often our decisions are hard to make. We also notice that Mark sailed to Cyprus for the Gentile mission, and I think this took a good deal of courage in light of his previous embarrassment. No one else seemed to have any confidence in him, at least not in Antioch. And I say this because Luke seems to suggest in verse 40 that the local church sided with Paul on the issue. Look what it says in verse 40. Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. Well, there is no indication that the church commended Barnabas and Mark. The great apostle Paul himself considered Mark a deserter. And most young men, I think, would have wilted under that kind of pressure. But he had the support and encouragement of faithful Barnabas, but it required a courage. And I think this is one of the evidences we find of Mark's call to the ministry. I think it very unlikely that he would have persevered if he hadn't been called. People who are not called by God will eventually wither under the blistering criticism that comes along. Yes, even in the church. It is the call of God that gives a person this kind of godly courage. When he calls, there is nothing on earth that will dissuade you. I remember having a discussion about 15, maybe 17 years ago. Linda could probably tell me for sure. But we were in our house having lunch on a Sunday afternoon with a young man who was trying to discern whether or not he was called to the ministry. Fine young man. Very talented, 
extremely bright, already proven in a different vocation, already. But now he came to lunch wondering if he should seek the pastorate. So he's asking me, and I'm asking him all kinds of questions. And I finally told him, point blank, I don't think you're called. It was hard to say. But because of his uncertainty and his vacillation and his personal willingness or desire to do anything else, I said, I don't think you're called. He ended up taking a church. He was there two years and he left. And it proved I was right. Because the ministry is something to which God must call you. It is the worst job in the world if you're not called. And it's the only job if you are. Uncalled people will give up. They might in due course go AWOL. But not you. If you're called, you know in your heart that God has summoned you. And so Mark presses on, embarrassed, deserter, suspected. He knew he had been called and he wasn't about to desert again. He had a major setback. It was a colossal failure, but he got right back in the saddle. And by God's grace, he was what he was. And we have his gospel to prove it. The gospel of Mark. Along these lines, I think we have to take note of God's grace in Mark's life. Because over time, the Spirit had sanctified him and be, he had become a faithful, fruitful man of God. And by the end of Paul's life, fascinating. By the end of Paul's life, Mark's reputation had been transformed. Listen to what he says. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. This is the same deserter that he didn't want to come earlier. And so Paul not only was reconciled to Mark, but he valued his contributions to the cause. And I think it's encouraging because it illustrates how God works in all of our lives. For anybody in this room who has blown it, no matter how low you have sunk, you are redeemed. God's grace is so abundant that the worst the worst can be overruled for good. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. Interestingly, in his letter to Philemon, Paul calls Mark his fellow worker. Peter went so far in his affection for him as to describe Mark as his son. That's not the way to describe a loser. Mark was lifted from the ash heap. How about you? How low have you sunk at seasons in your life? How bad have you blown it? Probably not as bad as I have. Very bad. Are you worse than Mark? David was an adulterer and a liar and a murderer. Peter denied his Lord three times, and Paul persecuted the very bride of Christ. So be of good cheer. The blood of Jesus can cleanse you from all sin. But second, there was Mark first. Second, there's Barnabas. 
steadfastly loyal almost to a fault. And this was the nature of the man. He was truly a son of encouragement, and God provided him when there was nobody else to believe in Mark. Everyone else had focused upon Mark's failure, but Barnabas, he highlights Mark's strengths. And he's willing to risk his own reputation for the sake of his cousin. And you don't find that kind of encouragement often. It's a rare thing, even in the church. We have to ascribe all the praise for Barnabas to the redeeming grace of God. And here was a man who was cheerful, good-natured, large-hearted, charitable. He was skilled in offering comfort and speaking peace to a wounded heart. And he could apply the gospel balm to the most grieved and troubled conscience. That's Barnabas. There's some new children coming. Barnabas is a great name. Here was a man outfitted by grace to heal and bind up bruised reeds, and he was a gift to the church. And he's not the only one. There have been countless encouragers throughout the history of the church. They help us navigate the valleys, don't they? They rejoice with us on the peaks. They strengthen us when we need to be strengthened. I'm sure that you can look back And you can recall certain people whom God has placed in your life to do this very thing. Humanly speaking, you could not have made it without their support. You take a minute and think about that. The afflictions, the disappointments would have been far too much for you. So thank God for those like Barnabas who are sons of encouragement. And how often are you and I tempted to write somebody off who's failed? I know I am. I'm ashamed to say it. Because if God treated me the way that I'm tempted sometimes to treat others, I'd be lost. God's grace is freer and deeper and wider and sweeter than we can ever imagine. And the Bible describes it as sovereign grace, immeasurably rich, It's surpassing and manifold and all-sufficient and superabundant. And it's a sin to be a Christian and not believe in the abundance of his grace. To walk around as if I am the worst person ever and God couldn't love me. That's a sin. Because it doesn't trust him. Let's take the example of Barnabas to heart. Let's seek to imitate his faith. And third, let's look at the Apostle Paul. His devotion to Christ is unparalleled. He's the one who said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everybody who believes. Here's a man who is ready to stand his ground for the cause of Christ, no matter the cost. Paul's fidelity to truth is one of the apostolic pillars of the New Testament church. And the Holy Spirit had transformed this Pharisee into a preeminent saint, and he watches over the churches like a hen watching over her chicks. Nothing was more important to him. He spent his life for the cause of Christ. He died for the cause of Christ. And his example is worth imitating, and I think I could improve in this area. But, but Paul had a rigid and severe side to his personality. 
And sometimes his personal severity interfered with his ministry to people. Take this situation with Mark. I think Paul was too harsh. His unfavorable assessment of Mark was far too premature. And as we've seen in his later years, his more mature years, he realized it. God had been working in his life, rounding off those rough edges, and the Spirit replaced them with the sweet spiritual fruit of Christian charity. So over the years, divine grace percolated in his soul and changed his heart. Yes, even the Apostle Paul. So that he would encourage us to put on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, and so on. That's not the language of a rigid Pharisee. That's the language of a seasoned Christian. The Spirit's sanctifying power had been at work in Paul's soul so that he became more charitable, more smooth, more polished as a saint. And near the end of his ministry, as we said, he said, Mark is very useful to me for ministry. And the same thing can happen to you and me. We can be transformed by grace. His grace can overcome a stern, disapproving, overcritical disposition. Now, we both know how unpleasant something like that can be for everyone around us. And we also know from experience how hard it is to change. I am so frustrated with myself sometimes. Why can't I change that? But God's grace can and does gradually over time permeate the soul and make us more charitable. And so we do that here in what Voss calls the workplace of recreating grace. Thank Pastor Pylon for that note. So that's Paul. We have Mark, we have Barnabas, we have Paul, but most importantly, we have the Lord himself. This illustrates in a fresh way how he can bring good out of bad. He delights in restoring and using imperfect vessels of clay. They had their flaws, but God used them. And he'll use you and me too, because someone has said, maybe Nick can confirm this, someone has said that good surgeons utilize very sharp knives. God performs his work with dull, rusted blades. <laughs> what a difference. He's amazing. And do you see how we use this regrettable quarrel in Paul and Barnabas' lives? The separation, mind you, meant that the church now had two missions instead of one. Do the math. The field ripe for harvest had double the laborers. The church benefited from four, four full-time missionaries instead of two. And the whole episode served his overarching purpose. The same principle was at work in the cross of Jesus Christ, perhaps the ultimate example of this truth. Because to the unbelieving world, the cross was the greatest failure of all time. Even today, you'll find critics scoffing at Jesus for falling short of his mission. But to the eye of faith, his sacrifice accomplished salvation. 
Evildoers crucified him, but God used it to defeat the devil, and that's the heart of the gospel. God is all about redemption, and anybody who looks to Christ for salvation receives eternal life, and that's how God overrules it for good. Every believer is bought with a price, and what a price it was, even the blood of God's Son. You and I can find refuge from the coming wrath by trusting in him. Nothing in my hands I bring, only to thy cross I cling. It's true. It may be hard to believe, but it's true. God said so. And so with Paul, we can say, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Thanks be to him for the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your abundant grace. We see how Paul and Barnabas needed it, how Mark needed it, and we're reminded how desperately we need it. We ask that you'll bestow it upon us through the Lord Jesus and we pray that your spirit will enable us to sing praise with grateful hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.